<clears throat> okay. So we have two more on the goodness of God. This one is the one I've been telling you guys about where when I studied it and it's toward the end, I was like, what? And uh, it's very interesting and uh, I think it's going to surprise you. But I want to talk about how to make God happy, which is tied to the goodness of God. Okay, so I'll, I'll connect all the dots. But we're going to start in uh, Hebrews 11.6 and it's very very simple. I mean, it's stated uh, right here. It says, but without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently uh, seek him. Now, by the end of this message, I want you guys and anybody listening to see. <laughs> to see how excited and how much he wants to bless us and when I say bless I'm talking monetary I'm talking in relationships I'm talking all of them that religious people say that we shouldn't expect okay because we like if you're a parent and you actually love your children there's nothing you like more than blessing them I mean it's just the dumbest idea that it is anti-God or anti-righteous or anti-selfless to expect good things from a good father. And a lot of people, that right there can save them a lot of trouble if they'll grab a hold of that revelation. So I want to obliterate any religious doctrine uh, that would cause you uh, to believe that and to show you how happy it makes him to bless us. Now, the word impossible in Hebrews 11.6 literally means not to be done. In other words, there's no way to please Him without those two things. Okay? So the first uh, thing I want to point out is the word please. It's eurestio, and it means to gratify entirely. Okay, so I want you all to think. Have you ever, like, finish something or you just had one of those days where you sat back and you're like that was a perfect day I have where it's like just anything you could think of it was just absolutely the best now times that times a hundred and here you've got father so if you want to think about anything that just makes him sit back and say that was good I am complete my gratification has been fully met. That's what this word is talking about. Okay? So gratify has the idea of satisfying a desire someone has. So we see here, his two desires is that we believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. So if you want to make God satisfied completely every single day, then design your life around those two facts. Now, you might be like, well, I believe that God is. Okay, so He is everything that He is. Now, I know that sounds like Kamala Harris when she's talking, but let me explain what I'm talking about here. You have to believe in all the aspects of who He says He is. This is not just you believe He exists like demons do and tremble in fear. This is a faith that embraces every aspect of who he says he is to us right so if he says i'm your provider 
When you believe that fully, guess what? You have gratified or satisfied him fully. If you believe that he is your healer and he's already healed you, then you have gratified and satisfied him fully. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. If you believe the work of Jesus Christ is absolutely perfect, it is done, therefore you don't have to beat yourself up or feed depression and anxiety or try to perform, then you have satisfied and gratified him fully. So to me, the pursuit of the Christian walk on this earth should be with an entire focus and goal of gratifying him completely. Okay? Now, obviously, love is tied into that as well, loving yourself, your neighbor, and him. So I don't want to let people off the hook because the working out of your salvation and fear and trembling is seeing him as he is and seeing you as he has designed you to be. All right, then the word reward, those who diligently seek him, which is tied to believing he is who he says he is, okay? So the diligently seek, you get a reward. Uh, let's see. Okay, I want to make sure I'm good. Alright, so our faith gratifies Him completely. The word reward originally had the idea of something that seems good. Uh, now, what's astounding is that His reward uh, is that we actually have the ability to make Him feel good. So when it says that he rewards those who diligently seek him, what that means is that our faith in him is actually his reward. It's not just we're rewarded, he's rewarded in the process. Because, and this may be a shock for some people, okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. He actually likes being around us. Okay, so if you're seeking him, right, and you're learning who he is, what that means is you're in a relationship with him. There's a pursuit going on. You're in his presence, and he really just likes hanging around you. Isn't that fascinating? So we are his reward. He then rewards us with more revelation of himself. And it's just this cycle that's never ending. It's going to continue throughout eternity. Okay, now Paul tells us, let's break this down a little bit uh, more that we must believe that he is or exists. This is the starting point of relationship with anyone, okay? So anyone that wants to know God, we have to know that he exists. But it has to go past that to where it impacts us in tangible ways. And it's also tied to his name, Yahweh, the self-existent one, the one who heals, delivers, provides, sees us. He sees us. That's really important because I think a lot of people feel like he's this abstract idea up in heaven and not really tied to the things that are going on in our lives, the difficulties, the, the joys, all of those things. That comes from, guys, not having uh, role models in your life that you felt connected to, and that's a good place to start. So if you had trauma with your parents or, you know, in school maybe you were invisible, Whatever it is, you have to start processing those things in the presence of Holy Spirit if you feel a disconnect. Because you should not feel a disconnect from Him if you are a Christian. So He sees you. Every facet of His being is for us to explore. But it culminates in one name, Jesus. So if you want perfect theology, it's Jesus. 
So that means you cannot interpret the Old Testament through anything but the perfect theology of Jesus. Because if you do, you will think Father likes genocide. You think that he's a judgmental uh, God up there just waiting to squish you. I mean, you'll think that there's no way you can approach him. And so it really requires a diligent study of Jesus and the epistles to properly interpret the Old Testament. So I want to give y'all some tangible, practical things. In fact, Michael Heiser's work, uh, all his books, read them. Listen to his podcast because it will explain a lot of what was going on in the Old Testament. It will also explain Jesus' mission and then the mission that we've been given. And it will open your eyes to how God views you and how he wants you to play a role in what we call Christianity. Hunji, I mean, it just, you'll never see the Bible the same way. Okay? So I'd recommend reading all of his books as well. So this name of Jesus is above all other names because Jesus came and he revealed the Father to us. Now, we must believe that he's a rewarder. The word rewarder means one who delivers reward or recompense, whether it's good or bad. So, uh, in this context, obviously it's good. Uh, the word diligently seek is one Greek word that means, quote, to exert considerable effort and care in learning something, to make careful search, to seek diligently to learn, and to make an examination to get to know God. Okay, now this is where effort is required. Because what I find is a lot of Christians are content to ride the wave of the emotion they're feeling in the moment. So if it's depression, they ride that wave. If it's anxiety, they ride that wave. Even if it's sickness, oh, I'll just ride this wave, at least I don't have to go to work. It's like we're not floating in the ocean on our backs, right? Okay, we're supposed to be swimming upstream. We're supposed to be going against the spirit of the world and the spirit that is in society and working right now, which is depression, anxiety, fear, anger, all of those things. So people are like, well, you know, that, that takes a lot of work. Yes. Yes, it does. But it's worth it. You can't think of it work as in toil. There's nothing more fascinating or captivating than researching God. And God promises his manna to those that overcome. Which is energy. And it's just... It's just, what does overcome mean? It could be something small. It doesn't have to be that we, you know, we're not waiting to overcome, you know, the enemy when we get to heaven. It's maybe we're overcoming uh, laziness. We're overcoming uh, the ability, like you said, to just stay where we're at. Right. That we actually make them one step forward. And not running from pain. You know, that's the thing is you can't run from pain and you can't run from fear. You have to deal with it and you have to begin to change your thought processes because following Jesus is very practical. He wants all of you. It's not just your spirit or your body when he returns. He wants your mind, he wants your will, and he wants your emotions, right? So that means that you have to start thinking like he thinks. You have to start feeling the way he feels. You have to start getting his perspective on things because our perspective can be skewed. And so it does take effort. It takes, you know, going after those thought patterns that are harming you and no longer, no longer serving you. 
So in a society where we can just hit two minutes on the microwave and get a meal warmed up, we're losing the ability to contemplate Jesus. Well, even question. I don't think God cares if we have questions. No. And because a lot of times, you know, we talked we've talked about that where we just um, take whatever the world has told us and not even question that. Yeah. So sometimes we've got something in our mind, and I've had God say, "What do you think that?" Mm-hmm. Me too. Why do I think that? Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. And is it Hang true? On. Yeah. Why did I think it? Is it true? And what is the truth? Yeah. So, you know, yeah. to question is, I think he delights in us to have the curiosity to question yeah. and look and search and and uh, have conversation. And this might be a moment where truth meets BS, like we say in our uh, Art of Self-Change podcast, because uh, if, if you're not willing to do what is necessary to be the most joyful, uh, happy, self-controlled, kind Christian growing, then the problem is not God. The problem is you. Okay? That's how it is. Because He has given us, according to, is it First or Second Peter, all things for godliness. And that through these exceedingly great and precious promises, you will partake in the nature of Jesus Christ. So pursuing God is just that. It's a pursuit. Having change takes effort. If you don't want to take the effort, then I don't want to hear you. I shouldn't meet people that don't know Him that are happier than a Christian. We're going to heaven. That alone should be enough to make you happy. Right? And so it's for the joy set before Him that Jesus was able to endure, right? The cross... If He could do it, He then gave us His Holy Spirit so we can do it. We are without excuse. And to me, the worst thing would be to die while, you know, we live our life. Which, by the way, depression is really anger turned inward. So you're just mad. So you just need to deal with your anger. Whatever is taking you uh, down that path, you got to get in the Word and you got to deal with it. But I would hate to get to heaven and live a life full of depression and anxiety and all of those things and I missed out on everything I could have done, and I might have made it in, but that's it. Okay? That, to me, would be the worst thing ever. There's some people that are totally, we talk about people that aren't prepared for what's, for life. Yes. And there it's are some worse. people that are not prepared for happiness. They do not know how to That's be it, good. Yes. And happiness is a skill. There's actually practical ways you can do it, but also we have the Holy Spirit who is joy he is the joy of the lord and the lord here's a key to joy the lord was anointed with the oil of joy because he hated unrighteousness more than all his other brethren maybe sometimes the joy we're lacking is that we're surrounding ourselves with too much unrighteousness Mm -hmm. too many people that are anger too many you know like uh, shows we're watching things like that so we have to gauge what we can handle and what we can't and make sure that those things are not robbing us of the joy of the Lord. And I think people need to see if they're in a state of anxiety and unhappiness and fearfulness and, you know, and you ask them about happiness. A lot of them have never been happy. And I don't think they have the skills to be happy. And so they self-sabotage. Yes. Even if they get into that good place, they self-sabotage and so that they're in a comfortable place. Because they've never been in the place of happiness, of joy, yes. and they feel like they're out there 
uh, and don't know what to do. Happiness, joy, love, hope all have to be stewarded. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you've not been in those places, what can happen is when you actually find out that you can have those things, then you have dread, which is a spirit of fear, because you're afraid that something's going to happen to steal it. But here's the reality. Those things are in Christ. They're not in your circumstances. So even at the height of grief, at the height of loss, you can still have joy. You may have periods where you're a little bit sad because it's warranted, or you may have periods where uh, there's a little bit of anxiety because you're not sure what to do, but then you just center yourself back in Christ because those are internal realities. In fact, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so here's the key. Anytime you're feeling a loss or dread or anything like that, the fear of loss is what will then attack you. So if you have like hope, if you have happiness, things are great, and then all of a sudden you start feeling those things, what's happening? You fear you'll lose them. That is a lack of trust in the fatherhood of God. It really is. Because father is good all of the time. Like Bill Johnson lost his wife. Now he lost his wife to cancer. The irony is they've had, I don't know how many thousands of people healed of cancer. So now he's living in that place of mystery, right? But his theology of the goodness of God is so ingrained in him that it's impossible for him to even question, God, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? For him, that's not even a question, okay? So when I was listening to his teaching, like I was telling you Friday, I'm like, it, I didn't even, it was like, I, I agree completely. I mean, I didn't even have any question whatsoever because God had nothing to do with the cancer. And so when you get to that place of understanding, and like God has told us, the goodness of God and our identity are the two things that you can build a successful Christian walk on. Because when you go through difficult times, which you will, you can anchor yourself in those. If you don't have that as an anchor, you'll be tossed back and forth. So if there's, again, a pursuit, it's right here in uh, Hebrews 11:6, which is the goodness of God. And that's why I feel like the church has let new Christians down mm -hmm. because they ought to have something that says, when you hit that time and you don't know which direction to go, yeah. because there's that time for everybody. Right. And a lot of them just go back to what's familiar. Yes. Not what's best, but what's familiar. And if they had somebody to hang on to say, I'm going through this, now what? What should I do? Yep. What's my, should be my next step? Yep. And instead, they, you know, because uh, we've had this uh, church mentality of, you know, I'm okay, you're, we're all act okay, praise the Lord, la, yep. la, la, no matter what's going on behind doors. Right. And if There's we not were, a reality or that's an authenticity. Right. There's not. And mm -hmm. I feel like if, if, um, even as, as Christians, if we know a new Christian, we ought to be able to, or not even a new Christian, but maybe somebody that's a weak Christian, and say, hey, if you're going through something and you need somebody to talk to, to ask, to whatever, you know, Let we're us available. Know. Yes. yes, it is important. They have, you know, like a lot of women that are abused, they've done research, like why don't they get out? Or why do they keep picking the same people? And there is a fear element. But once you get away, you pick someone else, the brain seeks out familiarity. So being abused is familiar. And so the idea of being with someone who's not abusive is almost overwhelming. 
and it's also tied into self-worth. And so their self-worth is so low that there's no way they could actually keep someone who is good. And I think a lot of Christians battle that as well. Their self-worth is so low that they don't believe God actually wants to be with them and actually yeah. wants to bless them. That was a, my, one of my first experiences I had as a... Uh, I, when I knew I had prophetic wings, let's put it that way, and I had a friend and she said her daughter was dating somebody just... Yeah. And this was in high school. Doesn't want her to do this. Not, you know, yeah. just to cut her friends off. Blah, blah, Control, blah. Control, yeah. And she said, I do not know what's going on. I said, how was her... Uh, relationship with her father. Right. Terrible. I mean, it was good and then they got divorced and turned yep. bad and blah, blah. Yep. I said, it doesn't have anything good this boy has. She's still trying to fix that. Yes. So she tries to find somebody that's close to him and fix it. Yep. Yep. Which is never centered in ego. Yeah, yeah, you cannot fix a past yeah. somebody because you're not that's Jesus's job. That's, that's right. Jesus's job. All right. So um, now effort, again, is important. As we seek him out, we learn him, we carefully search out his ways, his heart, he rewards us, and that reward is him unveiling himself. Uh, now in Revelation 22 uh, 12, I included this because where it says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward with me to give to everyone according to his work. Let me just solve a little mystery some Christians have. That word coming quickly, I remember years ago, I'm like, yeah, that's not What's going on there? Because <laughs> obviously you're not coming quickly on my scale, right? So the first thing is a day is as a thousand years for the Lord. So, you know, a couple days have well, passed since Jesus. Eternity. Right. Yeah. yeah. But the other idea of that word in the Greek is once the decision is made, bam, it's here. So that's why it's so important to be born again. Now, because once the decision is made, Done. You can't go back, right? Now, the word for reward is actually a different one, uh, and that's why I wanted to bring it in here. Uh, it is misthos, which is wages, hire, reward, retribution, punishment. So it's payment for work done, whether that work was good or that work was bad. Um, oh, wait a minute. Is it the same Greek word? Oh, I don't know. I've confused myself. Okay, so in Matthew 16, 27, it says, The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works. Okay, so no, the, the word in Revelation and in Hebrew 11 is the same, but the word reward here in Matthew is different. It is uh, A-P-O-D-I-D-O-M-I. And it's from two words that mean from and to give. It literally means to give or to do something necessary in fulfillment of an obligation or expectation. The idea is to give back as an equivalent, whether it's payment for labor, paying back a debt, or paying wages. The idea is also of good or bad. So you think of a prison sentence, right? So a prison sentence is the payment for a crime committed. So God will give the equivalent of each person's works. So all of this to say, good or bad, you will not escape his notice, okay? Now, what I wanna point out though, is in the context of works, we're not talking about him paying you 
for you to perform to gain his acceptance. That's not that's what that's not what we're talking about. What the best thing you can do on this earth is learn to love. It's the sum of all things. So if you learn love, it doesn't matter, your reward will be great. The motivation of what you build is what he's talking about. So if you go down to, uh, I think it's 1st or 2nd Corinthians chapter 3 where it talks about, I'm coming, uh, my rewards will be with me, I'm a consuming fire. If you build with precious jewels and gold and silver, your work will remain. So that's your life work. That's why he puts you on earth. So there's a responsibility for not doing why he puts you on the planet. The other part is wood, hay, and stubble. Those things will be burned up, but the person will possibly go ahead and get into heaven. That's living a life contrary to why you were put on this earth or building out of ego, greed, all of those things. So your motivation has to be, what are you telling me to do? And making sure that you're doing it because you love Him, not because you're trying to make a name for yourself. And by the way, just so you know, the ministry, just thinking it's a ministry, that's not all it is. Because Jesus made it very plain, the marketplace ministry is the dominant place He's at. So if you're a marketplace minister or a pulpit minister, it doesn't matter. You need to be living the life He designed for you, not for other people. Now, of course, we can expect good things in this life as well. And uh, I want to show you uh, the uh, word goodness used in Deuteronomy 28.63, which is very fascinating as we continue on. Okay, so in uh, the New King James, it says, It shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced, that word is important, you might circle it, over you to do you good and multiply, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked off the land which you go to possess. Uh, what? <laughs> Hang on. Now this is where people can get messed up, right? So you're telling me he rejoices over me to do me good, but also he'll rejoice to destroy me? I thought you said he's a good God. Absolutely. So let's look at this. The context of chapter 8, the blessings from obeying God, and the curses that from come from disobeying God, which is an old covenant uh, mindset, but there's also some truth that can carry over to the new. So the phrase, as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply, the word rejoice means to exalt, to be glad. It's a verb that indicates great rejoicing and jubilant celebration. It refers to the Lord's taking delight or joy over blessing His people, and it indicates finding a cause to be happy, like a horse enjoying his strength, the sun traveling across the sky, but especially God's people rejoicing over Him. So this is, He's happy when He can do good to you, when He can exalt you, when you're successful. You know, that self-sabotage thing. A lot of people, when they start experiencing success, again, they get a little bit nervous, they'll start sabotaging themselves, because will it last, right? And that's an orphan mentality, by the way, if you're afraid the good things of God will be taken from you. Or they don't think it, they deserve it. Exactly. So, just like, you know, watching Joseph play, that makes me happy. 
The Lord is happy when we're doing good, when we're executing wisdom and seeing the fruits of it and all of those wonderful things. He likes when we actually have money in our account. Do you know you can't really live your full destiny if you're having to scrounge around for money? Okay? That is a curse mentality. Before the garden, provision was there. You know, before the fall, I'm sorry. Provision was there. They didn't have to toil. They labored in the goodness of God, right? So you should have plenty of money where you're not having to worry about your bills being paid so you can actually focus on the work of God. So this is a picture of one living in the goodness of God due to their faith in Him, causing his heart to be happy. You love Him, and it shows. Your life is centered on getting to know Him, investigating Him, doing things that make Him happy. And like any good daddy, He shows you with good things. Prosperity, physical health, great relationships, influence. And we've already learned that. The goodness of God is all of those things in the Hebrew and the Greek. Okay? So remember that God's goodness in our lives always carries with it an absence of evil. That's so important. Now, let me qualify that statement. The Lord did tell us that because we love Him, we will experience persecution. Okay? So we know that's a given. We don't have to you know, worry about that. But you should not be experiencing in your lives the things He died to rescue you from. Terminal illnesses, poverty, relationships that are broken. Okay? Now, you can only do what you can do on the relationships. If other people don't want to reciprocate uh, reconciliation, that's on them. So, death does come to us in life, right? We experience loss of loved ones, all of those things. But what I'm talking about is any of the good things God gives you, there will be an absence of evil. That is the epitome of the goodness of God demonstrated in your life. Okay? Now, this uh, is not just you know, the goodness of God, success, etc., executing laws. Bill Gates can execute laws of wealth and get a lot of money. Now he's buying up all the farmland because he thinks he's God and knows how we should eat. Uh, so all these people like Jeff Bezos and them, they have wealth, but there is not an absence of evil. Okay? So for us, there's no evil attached to the goodness of God. It's a heart-centered display of the happiness of God that impacts all of our lives in positive ways. Now, uh, scripture proof for that is Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes one rich and he adds no sorrow with it. Now, before you give me that religious BS that rich there is rich in spiritual riches and blah, 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 and it's, you know, something that's uh, not necessarily tangible, that's a Catholic doctrine. Uh, this actually means in the Hebrew, rich. <laughs> so rich in land, Produce, possessions, blessing is one of good favor bestowed on another in the giving of a tangible gift or in the pronouncing of a verbal blessing. It's most often used to describe God's favor on the righteous. His favor on you because we are righteous in Jesus Christ makes us rich. Ballin'. You want to say it like that. Gangsta. I don't know. <laughs> However you want to put it, God makes us rich. Now, Prosperity is relative to your assignment and your ability to handle. Okay? So right now, I feel like a millionaire. You know what I mean? My husband, my son, our possessions that are very carefully selected. 
the ability to not impulse buy. <laughs> All of those things makes me wealthy. Okay? For someone else, it can be having $1,000 in their bank, in their emergency fund, and all of their bills paid. But as you grow, you'll see that the reason you were put on the earth requires funding. <laughs> so the more you have, the more you can do. All right? But hang on to them loosely. And that's where working believer offerings can help you do that. In Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What are the things? Does anybody know? Have y'all read that? Food, clothing, all of the things that we need. But don't think I'm just talking about needs. In John 15, in the Weiss uh, translation, it says, I command you at once. Ask what you desire, and it will be given to you by my Father in heaven. And by that happening, you will prove you're a disciple and that he is a good God, right? So he likes to give us goodies. And the Passion, it says, So above all, constantly chase after the realm of God's kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy, and the righteousness that proceeds from him. Then all these less important things will be given to you abundantly. Goodness chases you, which I don't know why goodness has to chase you. Just stand still. Uh, or, you know, the goodness of God is so overwhelming, you're like, I don't know what to do with all this. So you're almost like forced to give it out, to give it away. All right. Now, Matthew 6.33 is the best picture of Proverbs 10.22. In putting God first, putting His righteousness first, and believing He rewards. Okay? So having riches doesn't necessarily mean you're pleasing or trusting him. Again, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. The rich young ruler was a really good uh, example of that. He kept all of God's commandments. He enjoyed the favor of the Lord. But the wealth he possessed took possession of him. Okay, and that's where the fall occurs. In fact, a lot of Christian ministers, where their fall begins is when they get wealthy. So that's where you got to really, that's why I will pray for stuff that I could go buy. You know what I mean? I'm like, nah, you know, I don't, we don't need any of this independence thing. We need this dependence thing with God. And so it's like, hey, Lord, I would like this. And he never fails. It is absolutely stunning how he's like, okay, and he just gives me what I desired, right? And, of course, I thank him. But I want to read the parable of the rich young ruler before we get to that he rejoices to destroy you part. <laughs> okay, so in Mark, and I'm going to read it out of the ESV. Chapter 10, 17 through 31. Let's look at this real fast. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him, knelt before him and said, Good teacher, notice how he addressed him as a rabbi. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, see, that's interesting. That's interesting to me. We're talking about the goodness of God. This man has already experienced the goodness of God in his life, and yet he felt he was lacking something. So he goes to Jesus because he could taste something in him was the goodness he was searching for. And uh, he said, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Did y'all notice something miss, uh, missing? Which one of the ten? Because that's not the full Ten Commandments. You don't put God before. Idolatry. Yep. 
And he said, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And he said, uh, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Okay, so he had idolatry. Jesus loved him, therefore he told him the hard truth. What you're lacking is you put your trust and riches not in God. If you go sell them, you'll have treasure in heaven. He wasn't taking away his wealth to make him poor. He was taking away idolatry so he could actually steward more. Because we know if you give away all you have to the poor, that's a working believer offering. If you give all your uh, possessions away, you will get way more than you gave. What was actually the heart of the issue? He was an orphan. He was putting his trust in the riches. Because he didn't trust Father. And God was saying, put away those things that you've been leaning on. Mm -hmm. And you know, then he would get a new relationship, a better relationship because he wouldn't be looking to what he had. And an orphan, they can't trust a father because they don't know that. So what they do is they trust in themselves and they get into thriving and I mean, surviving and getting as much as they can because provision comes from a revelation of your dad. If your dad took care of you and provided for you, you will trust and you will not make wealth an idol. So I think he was an orphan and he knew he was lacking something and he should have known immediately it was idolatry because he didn't mention that one. And Jesus, we know he was good. So like I've said before, he wasn't saying, I'm not good. He was saying, why are you calling me good? You need to stop and ask yourself that because the only person that's good is God and that's me, right? But he wasn't connecting the dots. So Jesus looked around in verse 23 and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now the disciples were startled when they heard this. <laughs> but Jesus said to them again, Children, it is next to impossible, here he explained what he said, for those who trust in their riches, not those who possess riches, those who put their trust in them to find their way into God's kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that is uh, what it's a saying. But the thing that the camel had to do was unload its burden and humble itself and shuffle on its knees into those tiny little gates to get into the city. So what he's saying is you have to remain humble when you have wealth because it is a responsibility. It's a stewardship. So then they're like, well, who can be saved? So Jesus said, with man it's impossible not but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter said, well, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus said, well, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and lands with persecutions <laughs> and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first well I think it's interesting because why were they starving because because in it was it was that um, performance if and you do this you'll you get, get money this. yep so the fact that he was rich in their you know the 
that Old Testament mindset was that because God blessed him. Oh, well, and the Jews are very good at understanding. If you execute certain things, you get wealth. Mm -hmm. they, they don't, they're not afraid of wealth, actually, like uh, most Christians are. Uh, so God, his favor does bring that. I mean, it just happens. You mm -hmm. use wisdom, it just happens. It's natural. But they equated God's approval, exactly. like you were saying, with wealth, and that's not what Jesus was saying. He's like, no, no, your approval is in me. Mm -hmm. Okay? Right. Absolutely, you're going to have those things, but your approval is in me. And we know that these disciples, all of them, died a martyr's death except for John. But we do the same thing. We look and see somebody has got possessions and we think, mm -hmm. oh yeah, or they're right where they need to be, yep. you know, in God. And, and even giving doesn't impress me. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira gave and man, they ended up in a, you know, coffin. So the rich young ruler knew he was lacking something and what it was was the glory of God. He was designed for the glory of God. He knew it. And that's what he wanted. And he had a hunger because Jesus possessed the glory of God. But the price was too much because he trusted his wealth. Now, some Bible translations take out that phrase, but it's in a majority of the Greek manuscripts, and it's included in the Aramaic. So the key to enjoying the favor of God is in maintaining dependence and humility toward Him. Okay, so what I also love again about the goodness of God, there's no sorrow. The word sorrow means pain, hurt, and toil. It can be physical or emotional pain. So meaningful labor is a kingdom privilege versus toiling under the curse of a fallen system. Okay? All right, so let's let's look in, back in the Deuteronomy 28 and 26 thing. So you shall rejoice, Deuteronomy 26, 11, in every good thing which the Lord your God has given you in your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who's among you. God wants you to rejoice and be happy amongst the things he's given you. Again, hold on to him lightly. If he says give something away, give it away, you know. But he wants you to sit around and enjoy the things he's blessed you with. In Deuteronomy 28, 11 through 12, it says the Lord will grant you plenty of goods. In the fruit of your body, which only had one, praise God, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that was enough fruit from our body. <laughs> but for some people, it's 10 kids, 12 kids, whatever it is. In the increase of your livestock and in the produce of your ground, in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you, the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hand. In fact, you will lend, you will not borrow. So having so much, you can lend out. And by the way, here's a key. If you lend money, don't expect it back. If people pay you back, that's fine. If they don't, you just sow that thing and you move on. Okay, uh, Deuteronomy 39. The Lord, uh, your God, will make you abound in the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, the increase of your livestock the produce of the, uh, your land for good, the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. So in Christ, the only commandments you need to keep to live this is to love God and love others as yourself. Love fulfills the law. So as you pursue love, a.k.a. God, because he is love, the blessings of the Lord will be evident in your life. God is happy. You're happy. The only people that aren't happy are the people that don't like you. You know what I'm saying? And don't be hating. You know, don't be hating just because. All right. Now, let's get back to the part that I was telling you guys. Maybe go, what? I'm a little anxious when I first read it. Deuteronomy 28, 63. Let's read it again. And it shall be that just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do you good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you 
and bring you to nothing. And you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Okay, so what he's saying to the Israelites, if you don't keep my commandments, I will rejoice. It will make me happy to destroy you. Now, I personally would rather make him happy by, you know, uh, believing he exists and diligently seeking him. Okay. Rejoice over their destruction. Absolutely. The definition of rejoice I left out earlier refers to the Lord's delight or joy over blessing, punishing, or disciplining his people if they need it. And that's a quote. Hmm. Okay. Hebrews 12. Uh, 3 through 7. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons? My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, he deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In other words, if you're not getting in trouble for being stupid, you're a bastard. That's what this is saying. It's very plain. You don't belong to him. So the scariest time should be if you know you're being a stinker and he ain't talking to you. Something's up. Something's up. Okay? Now, when the Lord told Peter that they would receive a hundredfold back in houses for what they gave, uh, but notice he said with persecutions. The Hebrews were being persecuted by their own people, the Jews. And Paul tied that to the discipline of the Lord. The word chastening is, quote, the act of providing guidance for responsible living, upbringing, training, and instruction. It's the padea, instruction by deed, meaning he expects us to be actively living out what we learn, and if not, he will do so by deed. <laughs> okay? In other words, if we don't have some experiences, if we don't keep ourselves humble under the mighty hand of God, he will humble us. Okay? So the stone will become a huge stone that will crush everything in our lives that we have as idols, including our own will. And so, if we get like Solomon, who forgot God, what he'll do is he'll prevent that beforehand, if in any way possible. So sometimes that means a little bit of persecution will be stirred up. Now sometimes persecution is not a sign that you're being a stinker, but sometimes it can be. So instruction by deed. He'll talk to us first. If we don't listen, then our circumstances will be touched. It is not love to let a child do whatever they want to their own destruction. Therefore, God will discipline and rebuke those he loves, which why is why it makes him happy to discipline us. Because he knows what the fruit will be if we will submit to it. Because in verses 10 through 11, For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness, now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, if you refuse to be trained by it, you're in trouble, and you may end up in hell. There is no such thing as a guaranteed salvation. 
You may be born again, but if you don't pursue that, you might be in trouble. But know this, the Lord is very long-suffering. And He's the only one that knows if you've crossed the line, right? So we have to make sure that we are embracing what He's teaching us. One of the best lessons I learned as a daughter of God was to embrace His discipline. Because your discipline is a value statement. Not a value statement of how jacked up you are. A value statement of how much He loves you. In the, in the passion on that uh, first there, uh, on three, it said, consider carefully how Jesus faced such intense opposition from sinners who oppose their own souls. Mm -hmm. And Jesus, He is the epitome of the Padaya. He took the discipline we deserve. And it came through persecution, false accusation, all of those things. He didn't do anything wrong. It was for us, right? Okay. Now, the word destroy in Deuteronomy 28, uh, 63 means to perish, to be lost, to wander, or in a causative sense to destroy, to reduce to some degree of disorder. It is used to signify God's destruction of evil, both threatened and realized. Notice that it is causative meaning the response is instigated by the one who refuses to obey. In other words, if you are intent on doing and being evil, then He is going to remove you from the planet. And again, only He knows what the line is. He's very long-suffering. But if you're not going to get it, you're going to end up dead. That's all there is to it. I mean, I cannot make it any more plain, right? So we have to make sure we understand that. But also notice it means to be lost or to wander. In other words, all of a sudden you got all this disorder in your life that is beyond just normal things you go through. That may be a time to ponder, to pause and to ponder. Okay, I might have taken a wrong turn, you know, and to ask some questions. But you know if you're sinning. Well, you when, know? He, when he scatters them... He scatters them because it says, uh, you know, you're going to go worship your your the gods, gods you of, wanted. of wood and stone. Mm -hmm. Well, when when it's when they're out of their comfort zone, mm -hmm. and he says, okay, if that's what you want, go and do it. Yep. Then they realize the wood and stone can't do anything for them. Mm -hmm. So it, you know, it's and it's like we saw in our long study of kings. He would try for centuries. Mm -hmm. He tried to get them to figure this out. And finally, it's like, okay, you want. Idolatry, you can have idolatry, but he always preserves for himself a remnant. Right. And they came back and a nation was reborn. Uh, so God always has his faithful, always. And uh, so the, the pain will increase until people either repent or they're absolutely uh, destroyed. Now, here's the word for us as his people. Isaiah 53.10. I know I've given you a lot of scripture, but I felt like this really needed to be explained well. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The word pleased means to delight in, to have pleasure, to have favor, to be pleased. Jesus was Father's response to our sinful state. All of the punishment, chastisement, etc. that we deserve Jesus took it upon himself and it delighted Father. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for another. 
Jesus is the solution to the sin problem. He is the response to the Deuteronomy verse that He will rejoice over destroying us. Although God's will, uh, and although God will discipline us as needed, there is a shortcut in 1 John 1, 9 through 2, 2. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation or mercy seat for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. The reason it pleased Father for what Jesus went through is because of you and me. That is stunning. Because if there was anyone he loved more than anybody, it was his son. And yet, he was willing to sacrifice him for us. And he loves us equally right now in this moment, right? So just confess. Agree when God tells you what you've done. Just agree. Absolutely. Then repent. Turn from that and allow him to cleanse you. Agree that the only atoning sacrifice for sin is Jesus Christ and His blood. There's nothing we can do to outperform sin. If that was the case, the law would still be in effect. They would have been righteous by the law. So following law or performance-based mentalities and actions will never overwhelm sin. Only Jesus Christ swallowed it up. And He removed death's sting. We simply believe, confess our sin, and allow Him to cleanse us, and the Lord will once again rejoice over us. Making God happy makes us happy. It's that simple. Father absolutely loves to bless us, to show us His favor, to pour out His goodness. He's a good daddy. And like any good parent, He loves those things. He rejoices when we're doing well. He celebrates our successes. He lavishes us with prosperity. He was chastised for our peace, and His stripes ensure our divine health. This is the Lamb of God result. However, the Lion of Judah has no problem disciplining those he loves. He knows that it's a necessary part of parenthood to ensure the well-being of the child, but his utmost delight was when the Lord took our place. He became a curse for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. As we see him and his righteousness, we will experience material blessing. You cannot get away with it or get away from it. The secret is not to put your trust in any of those things. They will perish. Instead, diligently seek to know God as fully as possible on the earth. All right, so any thoughts before I get into a little bit of, I want to share the goodness of Father. Wow. That, that was, yeah, that was amazing. Okay, so I'm going to try to do this without tearing up. Just heads up. Warning, disclaimer. Uh, but what you said uh, Friday, I was really pondering about the focus. I think me and you both were getting that the goodness of God. And that's what we need to focus on, praying for the people of God to awaken to, awaken to the goodness of God. And when I say God, I don't want to just use the word God and make Him impersonal. I'm saying Father. The goodness of Father. So, two years ago, the Lord told me at the exact same spot 
on Heaslet off of 7th Street to 6th Street, when he told me my, how many years my grandfather had, he said, you have two more years with your dad. And uh, so instantly, you know, I'm like, you know, like, why do you tell me this? <laughs> but I think part of the reason he sh shared that with me is because I don't want to waste any moment. And so I made sure three to four to five days a week I went and visited Grandpa. And sure enough, that time it, was, it approached and we lost him. So the two years were coming up with my dad. And I was getting really kind of nervous, you know, like, okay, how's it going to happen? Am I going to find him dead? Please, I don't want to find him dead. I don't want him to die of sickness. You know, like, you know, I want it to be quick. And uh, so a lot of you know the story. My dad was as stubborn as a mule. And he started having weak spells for like three years and wouldn't go to the doctor. COVID scared him. And uh, so the people that released it as a political weapon, uh, I probably just need to pray through a little bit of that because I'm not very happy about it. But he had a choice, right? And um, so anyway, he got pretty sick. Uh, June 19th, uh, even then, I was like, Dad, if you're not going to make it, we need to call the ambulance. Well, little one, you know, we can wait till tomorrow. Uh, and I'm like, click, 911, what is your emergency? <laughs> I'm like, no, we ain't waiting. Sure enough, they air-backed him, and uh, he ended up having um, gangrene and a wound uh, between his scrotum and rectum. He'd be horrified that I was sharing that, but he ain't here now, so... Um, <laughs> And we didn't know if he was going to make it. His mortality was 30%, which, by the way, I didn't know terminal was 50. Terminal is 50%. If you have a 50% chance, it's terminal. So I'm in the emergency room with him. It's like one something uh, that morning. The doctors tell me. And uh, I'm like, okay. And they said, do you want us to tell him or do you want to tell him? I said, no, I'll tell him. And they're like, okay. And so I go in there and I sit and I had to collect myself. I said, Dad, you may not make it. And I gotta make sure you know Jesus. We're gonna air back you a little bit, but I gotta make sure you know Jesus. Well, Lillian, I know I'm not giving you much evidence. But I know him. I remember it like it was yesterday, walking down that aisle, First Baptist Church in Friona. And it was funny that not much evidence, because he didn't. <laughs> he didn't give me a lot. I said, so you're born again. You know him. And he said, yes. I said, okay. And I, I was going to revisit later to make sure, but he said, well, little and I sure am sorry. And, uh, I said, it's okay. He said, but it is what it is. I said, yeah. And he had no fear. He had absolutely no fear of death. I couldn't figure it out. He didn't want to leave me and Kent and Mike and his cats. And uh, so I was tired and it was going to be a while, so I went home, air-backed him to Lubbock. He's doing good. Go visit him. They had emergency surgery. They found he had built a new urethra. They did catheter, put that in, did another surgery. Went up and visited him. I said, man, Dad, 
I'm so glad you made it. I'm so thankful. I said, we're going to get your hernia fixed. We're going to get your teeth because he wouldn't do that because of COVID. You're going to live another 20, 10 to 20 years. And uh, yeah, but there was no cancer. I said, no, there was no cancer. I think he thought he had cancer. Huh. He said, well, I might have to go honky-tonk and get me a new wife. <laughs> I said, yeah, don't do that. You ain't that good at picking them. But anyway, <laughs> and uh, so everything's good. We didn't want to bring him here because we didn't trust any of the facilities here because he couldn't go home. And uh, I begged him, put him in a good place in Lubbock, please. Oh, absolutely. Garrison in Lubbock, Texas. Five star. It'll be good. All right. Go to see him Saturday. I don't feel good. Look at his bag. Still had the catheter. The wound was great. I read his records from the hospital. Sediment in his tube. His urine was orange. I said, Dad, you got a UTI. I know it. So I get the nurse. I said, I want a UTI test. Well, I mean, it was it was Amber when he got here. I said, I don't care. He's got a urinary tract infection. I want a test right now. And I, I said, uh, that's common knowledge. You have a catheter. It's a very high rate of UTIs. Get it done. I then read their state survey. So you want to know if a place is going to kill your parent, read a state survey, and you can see what the complaints are, low-quality care, blah, blah, all in there. They get the UTI, he's positive. They get him on Cipro. He uh, starts vomiting. He gets weak. He falls. He becomes unresponsive. They get him over to Lubbock last Sunday. And uh, they said, you need to get here. And they're trying to figure out what happened. We sent him there. He was fine. Twelve days later, he's dying. He's sick. We're giving him four pressers to keep his blood pressure up. Does he have dementia because he's telling us he wants to go home because he, de he doesn't like our program? And I'm like, no, he's sick. And they said, okay, we're going to try to save him, but it ain't looking good. All right. So I'm on the way up there, and I kept hearing in my spirit, I recognized his voice. He said, he's gone. You know how you are. You don't wanna, I didn't want to hear it. He said he's gone. Just kept listening to worship music. And then Father said, I'll be your daddy if you let me. He's in ICU. He ain't breathing on his own. He's not in a drug-induced coma. He's, he's gone. They said, we can't figure out what's wrong with him. He's septic. He's in septic shock. His wound is fine. We can't figure it out. We've looked for blockages. There's no blockages in his intestines, but all the blood has left his lower body to keep him alive in his heart and his brain. His intestines are dead. At the perfect moment, my cousin Tony comes up there. Surgeon, the doctor, they said, we can cut him open on the table. He will have no quality of life. It will not save his life. Uh, he'll probably die on the table. But we'll do it if you think he wants it. And I'm like, okay, Holy Spirit, I need to know. 
And Tony said, tell her straight. And they said, he's probably going to die anyway. Then don't do it. Don't resuscitate him. Don't do it. Okay. So I cry with her. Go back in there. And I'm like, I need Mike. So I get in the car, bring him back. And they said, what we'll do is we'll send in comfort care. They'll make sure he's comfortable. And do you want your son here? I don't know. Ken's like, Mom, I don't. Don't want to see that. Okay. And the Lord promised me, He said, it'll be quick. That's how you'll know. And it'll be so peaceful, that's how you'll know He's with me. I said, okay. So Mike's there, cousin Tony's there. Such a comfort. Which reminds me of my Aunt Joanne. And so Kent, you know, he's not coming until later. And so I, I said, okay, let's do it. There's no point in putting it off. And so they come in, they take the machine off, they stop all of his medicine, and you just watch his blood pressure go down and stroked his head. <laughs> You're a good dad. And I love you. <laughs> Don't worry about anything. <laughs> I love you. It was the most peaceful death. My grandpa, he had a death rattle. Dad didn't. He just quit. In fact, we kept having to put our ear next to him. Because I'm not repeating the story. I just want people to hear how good Father was. Because my dad taught me love. That's how I know Father loves me was him. He wasn't perfect, but I always knew he loved me. So then we sat around forever waiting for him to do what they needed to do with them, and God just confirmed what to do after and all of that. And uh, so we left them there, and it was weird because I didn't mind leaving them. I didn't want to leave my grandpa, but I didn't mind leaving them. And we get home, and so, you know, Kent, he's on his birth anniversary, and I was like, Mommies, mommies didn't die on Ken's birth anniversary, and we prayed Dad wouldn't. So, mommies died on the 16th. The dad died on the 18th. So, mm -hmm. Ken's you know birth anniversary, and uh, so anyway, we talked Wednesday, me and Ken, and we decided to cremate him, and because uh, I knew he wouldn't want ten thousand dollars going on a funeral, and I knew he'd want that some of that to go to Kent, and so. He said, Mom, I had a dream. He says, a few weeks ago, and I didn't understand it till now. He said, in the dream, I was at PG's. So my grandpa's house and dad's house are like right across the street, but dad lived at PG's. And he said, Papa looked really young. And he was truck driving like he used to, and he had his truck parked between his house and PG's. And he had to go, and Kent was there. And he said, uh, well, I better get back on the road. He got in his truck and drove off. And uh, so God was letting Kent know. And uh, letting him know it was coming. And then the final thing Father showed me, that he's in heaven, because that was the most important thing, is uh, I saw twice, in, like a glimpse in the spirit. Dad's hair wasn't gray, it was brown. And... Uh, all I saw was the back, and Father said, my prodigal is home, and I knew he was hugging him. 
So all of that to tell you, because this ain't fun, is he'll guide you through everything. He's a good daddy. You don't have to worry. You don't have to wonder. And even after, I was like, I want to buy me things. It was weird. All of a sudden, I went to buy stuff. I was like, what is that? And the Lord reminded me it was, um, I would impulse buy because Dad, whenever he was home, he'd buy me gifts. And like, he, he would buy me a Snoopy, <laughs> like those Snoopy stuffed animals and stuff. That's from him. I'm in my 40s. And he'd buy me Snoopy and Mickey Mouse. And uh, so I was like, I, I just want to buy me stuff. And I recognized that's what it was. And the Lord's like, you don't need to buy anything. You still got me. So this is what you need to hear. You cannot get past your perspective of Him and yourself to see His goodness. You can't get past that. If you want Daddy that relevant in your life, you got to believe He's good all of the time. And you got to believe that you are who He says you are. And if you will believe those two things, your life will change. But you got to believe that, and He can't get past you. So I wanted to share that goodness. And I wanted to tell you a few things. Ask for revelation. Read the epistles in the Passion. And you'll see how good He is. And if you do those two things, He'll tell you things like that. He'll tell you, hey, so-and-so is going to be gone in a couple years. You better make sure you spend time with them. And then I found out from Kent uh, when he moved to uh, Washington, it almost killed my dad. And uh, he uh, said, Papa's praying for you too. And uh, my uh, cousin Tony, he said, I remember when you were born. He was captivated with you. He'd just stare at you. And uh, he spanked me once. I cried so hard, he cried, never did it again. And uh, I was like, man, Father, I wish I could see, like, you know, see that, like what, how he saw me. He said, you did. Well, uh, I'm, I know my eyes were in my head and might have seen it, but I don't remember. He just no, you saw it when he uh, saw Kent for the first time. I had him in a little onesie with... Uh, his turquoise little cell boats. And he's two weeks old in the car seat in my Chevelle. Dad, I was like chopped liver, kind of pushed me out of the way. <laughs> Go straight to Kent. He said, there he is. Him, there him is. Picked him up. I couldn't get my kid. Took him into PG's living room, propped him up on the pillow, grabbed a bottle, fed him. I'm like, hey, uh, can I have my kid back? And he's like, oh, no, you have an errand. You can go ahead and run it. I got him. And from that moment on, you couldn't separate him. So Father is good. We don't even need to question if he allowed something or did something like that. He, he had, there is no sting in death. He took it away even for my dad. Isn't that good? He's good. And I had the first non-crying day yesterday. <laughs> and we found in the papers uh, uh, his birth certificate, I think, my grandmother's marriage license, a marriage license from my grandparents' parents, uh, pictures of my dad. I found pictures of me. I found a picture of my dad staring at me when I was three days old. I mean, 
God is just overwhelming all of us with kindness. So, anyway, so Father, I pray that for people that maybe they didn't have that experience of a dad like I did. Maybe they don't know what it means to be loved by a daddy. Maybe they never even had one in their life or the one they had abused them. But Father, out of my pain, I impart that revelation of a good daddy all the time. Never does any evil, never does anything bad to us or to hurt us. And I ask for that same closeness, that same direction and everything that you've given me. I ask that it be imparted into those that are hearing and have the faith to receive revelation of his goodness. I mean, if we think about it, Father, the whole purpose of Jesus was you saw us as orphans and we had no way to save ourselves. And so you became one of us and you became our solution. And so I pray for those that they feel disconnected from you. Maybe they feel close to Jesus, maybe even Holy Spirit, but they don't feel close to you as a good daddy. I ask that you overwhelm and overcome every lie, every mindset, every wall that's been built. Overcome it. And I ask that you capture them in fatherhood. I ask that you open up the scriptures to them. I ask that you open up how they've been uniquely designed the very way you wanted them to be so that they could love you perfectly and completely, so that you could love them perfectly and completely, and so they could fulfill the purpose of their life here. I ask that you help them recognize what I call the kisses from heaven that you send every day. Help them recognize that's from a good daddy. Kissing them on top of the head like any good daddy will do. So I ask that you do that for them and get them the word uh, that they need to see who they are in your eyes. Not the world, not anybody else, just you. That's all that matters. And so, Father, this morning as well, we want to give our tithes and offerings not out of any obligation, any pressure. That's not who you are. That's not how you live. It's not how we live. And we ask that you receive them this morning where you are. And I personally, and I know Mike and Kent and Chrissy would agree, I want to thank you for my dad, that you gave him 75 years, that's five bonus years, to prove to me that he was your son. And I thank you for that. And I pray that I don't forfeit or waste my life. I don't want to just get in, Father. I want to learn to love like you do. And so I, I think that's probably for all of us in this room. So we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.